have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open that up to Luke chapter 21, the very end of Luke 21, uh, in the Black Pew Bibles, uh, that's on page 881. Uh, so over the last few months, uh, we have been following along as Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. And he spent the last few days in his time, last few months in our time, weeks anyway, uh, teaching publicly, specifically calling attention to the failure of the religious leaders, calling them to repentance for their idolatry, for their love and the worship of the things that God made, rather than their love and worship of him. And because of these leaders' failure to repent, their city, their temple, and their place would be taken away from them. All of the things that they loved and trusted were going to be laid waste and brought to nothing. And the people, or at least some of them, appeared to be embracing Jesus. They, they were hanging on every word that he said as he spoke. But the leaders kind of unsurprisingly, were not embracing him. And so that's where we're going to pick up uh, at the very end of Luke chapter 21 today. <coughs> Excuse me. And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So the leaders, it seems, were afraid of the people. Because ultimately their position, their power, their authority depended on the people obeying them, the people following them. And if the people stopped following them and stopped doing what they said, stopped listening to them, then that would be the end of all that they had built up. And so they were seeking how to put him to death, but it had to be, it had to be secret. It couldn't be out in public, right? Jesus was going to the temple every single day. They knew where he was gonna be. It wasn't a matter of logistics, but, <clears throat> but they knew that if they tried to arrest Jesus while he was teaching there in the temple, there'd be a riot. That would not end up going well for them. And this, and this is the window that opens for them. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a member of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, that is Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them, in the absence of a crowd. Now this is one of the great tragedies of this story. Judas is one of Jesus' twelve disciples, one of the men who left everything to follow him, one of the people who heard all that Jesus said, one of the people who saw with his own eyes all that Jesus had done. One of the men who preached the coming of the kingdom of God. One of the men who cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Who did miracles in the name of Jesus. And Judas was, as far as we can tell, right there with them. Doing all of those things. But Judas had a problem. 
says in John 12 that Judas was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he was the treasurer for the disciples. He was the one who kept the checkbook. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas had seen all that Jesus had done. He had heard all that Jesus had said. But Judas's life, his hope, his faith, his trust, was in one thing. And that thing wasn't Jesus. It was money. He followed Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He saw Jesus. But apparently what he loved and what he worshipped and what he truly trusted was the idol of money. Satan used that idol. He used that idol to play Judas, to play him like an instrument, waiting until the time was right. And when that time was right, Satan played the music and Judas bowed down and worshipped at the feet of the idol of money and sacrificed his Messiah, his rabbi, on its altar. Now we're not going to go too deep into that today. But this is what Satan does with your sin. He takes something small. He takes something hidden. Something seemingly inconsequential. And he leverages it to your destruction. You cannot hide your sin. Do not coddle your sin. Do not make friends with it. Do not, do not tolerate it. Rip it out by its roots because it will kill you. Do not mess around with your sin. Then came the day of unleavened bread, verse 7, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will lead you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is why Jesus has come to Jerusalem in the first place, is to celebrate the Passover. Um, and uh, the Passover was a feast that all of Israel was supposed to celebrate. It was a time of remembrance when, uh, of the time when God had rescued Israel from their slavery in Egypt. So for 400 years, um, more than a thousand years ago at this point, uh, for 400 years the children of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. And God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let his people go. Uh, Pharaoh said no. Repeatedly. Um, and so the Lord sent plagues upon Egypt, each one of them being an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent of his disobedience. And there was a final, a tenth plague that the Lord promised. And we read about that in Exodus 11, <clears throat> where Moses says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So this, is, this final plague is an act of judgment on Egypt for their idolatry, for their refusal to listen and to do what it was that God had called them to do. But there was a way, there was a way that those who believed God would be delivered from this plague. We read about that in Exodus 12, where God says to Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep, from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. A little later he continues, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood, remember the blood that they put around the door of the house, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So judgment was coming on Egypt. And this was how they could be, they would be delivered from that judgment. If they believed God, if they had faith, if they were his children, then this is what they would do. They would kill that lamb and spread the blood on the door frame of the house. Because of that faith that they had, revealed in the sign of the blood on the wood, the Lord would pass over the houses of those who believed in him. And it was effectively the Passover that fully and publicly established who God's people were. Because there was no in-between here. Right? There were those who believed, and those people had blood on their doors. And then there were those who didn't believe, and, the, and they didn't have the sign of blood on their door. It was either or. There was no in-between. And for those who believed, they were spared. But those who didn't believe, they, would, they were subject to this judgment. And the plague came, and it happened just the way that the Lord said it was. And Pharaoh sent Israel away, and God delivered them from the Egyptians through the water of the Red Sea. Those who had been saved by the blood then passed through the water of the Red Sea, and the people who emerged from the sea on the other side, those were God's people. Those were his children who believed in him and did what it was that he had told them to do. They had been saved by the blood, and they passed through the water. And they were to do this again and again, every year, as a reminder. 
part of the instructions that the Lord gave through Moses in Exodus 12. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service, so this Passover service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And so he's telling them, from now until, just from now on, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to eat the same meal of the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and the wine. And you're supposed to eat that meal with the blood of the lamb spread on the door of your house as a way for you to remember what it was that God had done for them in rescuing them out of the darkness, out of the slavery, out of the living death of life in Egypt. And that is one of the things that we desperately need. Because God's people have always been really terrible rememberers. They forget. <coughs> they forget very quickly. Time and time again in Scripture, you see God making promises. And people saying, okay, yeah. And they do pretty well for a little while, and then they forget. They forget who God is. They forget his faithfulness. They forget his power. And so the Lord provides them with a way to remember, a way to remind themselves of his power, of his love, of the way that he has saved them in the past. And so when, when we get to Jesus' day, the way that they celebrated the Passover was everybody who could traveled to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, and so it would have been... Thanksgiving, Christmas, family reunion, 4th of July, all kind of rolled into one. This was a big deal. But for Jesus, this particular Passover has a special significance. So let's pick up in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is to be Jesus' last Passover. And indeed, his last meal with his disciples. But there's something that he says here. He says, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's talking about taking this Passover meal, eating this Passover meal with his disciples. But he's saying that there is yet to come a greater fulfillment of this Passover meal. There is something in the future that will completely explain, that will completely understand, that this Passover meal is designed to point to. The Passover is a sign that will not be fulfilled, that will not be fully satisfied until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I think that this is what Isaiah was writing about in Isaiah 25. 
when he says, On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So the Passover meal then has a greater purpose. It is pointing forward towards a greater meal that the prophets had spoken of. Not just one where not just where death will not just pass over the house, but where death will be swallowed up and destroyed. And all of God's people will feast forever and ever on the best food that can be made. And this will not be a feast of remembrance, but it will be a feast of celebration. For there are no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. And so Jesus is saying, this Passover meal, this is the last one that I am going to eat before that meal, before the meal that we will share together one day in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the purpose of the Passover observance, of this Passover meal, was to remember how God had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. To remember the covenant that God had made with them. But Jesus, here, in this passage, is giving his disciples something different, something larger, something bigger for them to remember. Because the old covenant, Jesus talks about a new covenant here, the old covenant that Israel existed under had promises, but they were conditional promises. The Lord said, if you will do these things, then I will do these things for you. And that covenant was ratified by Moses through the blood of animals. And he sprinkled them with blood and said, these are the terms of the covenant that the Lord has made with them. <clears throat> it says in Hebrews 9 that when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, he sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood of the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why, under the old covenant, you have these sacrifices that are made time, time, time again. To purify people from their sins. But Jesus is offering to his disciples here and to us a new covenant, a better covenant. Not where the blood of animals ratifies the covenant, not where the blood of animals purifies the people, but where his blood confirms and his blood purifies his people. But we are just as forgetful as they are. 
because they were. We are constantly in need of reminding. And so Jesus gave them this way to remember. To take bread, to take the cup, and to share it among ourselves. And in doing so, to remember together. But remember what? Because at this point in the story, uh, I'm not sure that his disciples completely understood what was going on here. What is this new covenant that he's talking about? He's giving them a sign to remember something that hasn't actually happened yet. He's giving them the remembrance before the event has taken place. So they probably don't know 100% what's going on here. Uh, but Jesus does. He knows that he is going to die. And not just that he is going to die, but he knows that one of these men, that Judas specifically, these, this man who had followed his every step for the last three years, was going to betray him. And so he says in verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it, it could be who was going to do this. And if you have spent much time around the church, around the Bible, you know what comes after this. Judas betrays his Lord, his Messiah. And Jesus is put on trial. Kind of. It's a sham trial. And everybody who was involved knew that it was a sham. But they did it anyway. He was whipped. He was beaten. And he was executed. Hanging on a Roman cross. And on that day, his body was broken as he had broken the bread the night before. On that day, his blood was poured out. The blood of the new covenant. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of faith. Because the blood of animals under the old covenant could never take away our sin completely. But that is what the blood of Jesus did. Under the terms of this new covenant in his blood, we have been washed clean of our sin. And for all those who believe in him, who have faith in him, their sins have been forgiven. And not just their sins have been forgiven, but they have been made children of God. They have been made heirs to the coming kingdom of God. They have been given a gold-lettered invitation to that feast that Isaiah was talking about, where the veil of death that has been draped over all of creation will be rolled back. And we will never... And we will never be sad. We will never suffer. We will never grieve again. And that faith, that faith is the essence of being a Christian. It's not a matter of good behavior. It's not a matter of strong moral character. But to be a Christian means that we have believed, we have trusted as the single foundational truth of our lives, 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins, who rose on the third day, and is coming again one day to fulfill all things in his kingdom. But we, like Israel, are prone to forget. The cares of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of these things conspire together to make us forget that we have been saved out of death and into life by the blood of Jesus offered once for all. Instead, instead all of these things want to make us believe that we will find life and meaning and purpose and safety and security in something else. In something less than Jesus. In something other than Jesus. In the end, Satan doesn't care what it is that we're trusting as long as it is in Jesus. But in this passage today, Jesus has given us a tool to use to remind ourselves. And this right here, this is the origin of one of the two ordinances or, or sacraments of the church that all believers from every single faith tradition have practiced from this day here until today. Now, it, it looks different in different places, and different people might attach different meanings to them. But they have all attempted to follow Jesus in obedience. Now the first one of these tools, the first one of these ordinances or, or sacraments, is baptism. And in baptism, what we are doing there is we are publicly proclaiming that through faith we have been united with Christ. That we are one. I am one with him and he is one with me. His death is my death. His life is my life. His righteousness is counted as my righteousness because my sin was counted as his sin on the cross. And so we, on that day, are publicly proclaiming that we are walking a different path from the world. Not the path of darkness, not the path that the world lays before us, but we are following after Jesus because we have been made one with him by grace through faith. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have not been baptized, I would strongly encourage you. Talk to me about that. Let's get that done. Because there is a joy, friends. There is a joy and there is a freedom in being obedient to this call. In publicly proclaiming that you have decided to follow Jesus. The other tool, the other tool that we are given is communion. The Lord's Supper. And so we do what Jesus told us to do in this passage. We remember. We remember. That's what communion does. It's, it's an opportunity for us to remember, to remind ourselves, to remind one another that our hope, our faith, our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But it's also important to know what's not happening right here. Because baptism, communion, these things do not save us, right? Because you can take communion the way that Judas did and have it be a pointless and ultimately harmful thing. 
because it's not about the bread and the cup. It's not about the quick bath that you get in baptism. What saves us is faith in Christ. And these things are the ways that we use to remind ourselves of that. So as we take this meal together, we remember the things that we are tempted to forget. We take a moment and we look back at the cross. Because you and I are not saved from our sin by getting our act together and setting ourselves straight. We are not saved by finally living up to some standard. But we are saved because Jesus, you are saved because Jesus died on the cross for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And so this is our reminder. This is our reminder that that salvation has already been accomplished. All of the work that needs to be done for you to be saved from your sin has already been done 2,000 years ago on that Roman cross. But we also take this opportunity to look around at one another. Because when we are saved, we are not just saved from the world. We're not just saved out of the world, but we are saved into a people. That new covenant people, God's people, the church. You are now one with those people, just as you are one with Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 12 that, For as in one body we have many members, and many, many members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And the consequence of that, he writes about in Ephesians 4, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So these people here today, these people all around the world, these people throughout all of time that share in their remembrance of Christ through communion, that share your faith, are members of you. Just like your hand is. A hand is a part of who you are. And so all of the body of Christ, all of the church, the universal church, are members of you. And you are members of them. And so therefore, Paul says, we are called to unity. There should not be divisions and dissensions. There should not be unforgiveness and grudges. None of us should suffer alone. And none of us should rejoice alone. Because if we are each one with Christ, then we are also one with one another. And so look around as we take this communion meal together. So we look back to the cross. We look around at his church. And we also look forward. 
and we remember the promises that God has made concerning the fulfillment of his kingdom. I read from Isaiah 25 earlier, but there's a parallel passage in Revelation 21 where John is having this vision, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And so as we celebrate this communion meal together, we are remembering today that we have a shared hope and future that transcends anything that this world has to offer. The kings and kingdoms of this world will pass away. Your gold and your houses and your riches will rot and they will burn. Your families may forsake you. Your bodies may fail you. Death itself may stretch out its hand for you. But our hope is that one day Jesus is coming back to roll away the veil of death, to dry every tear, to make all things new, to give us the living water that our souls thirst for. To give us himself forever and ever. But the Bible does warn us against something. And we'll read this passage in a little bit. But it warns us against taking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy fashion. And so if you have sin today that you are excusing, that you are justifying, that you are covering up, that you are sheltering, you must repent. You must confess your sin. If you had an idol in the center of your heart, as Judas did, you must repent, and that idol must be torn down and ripped out of your life. If you are harboring unforgiveness and bitterness toward a brother or sister, you must repent and be reconciled to if you are taking communion today simply so you don't stand out, or because you think that your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad will look at you funny, don't. If you are taking communion today and you don't actually believe that Jesus died for your sins, don't. Let the cup pass you by. Let the bread pass you by. Do not take the cup of the Lord in an unworthy fashion. So Paul wrote First 1 Corinthians 11 that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let's take a moment to examine our hearts this morning as we prepare to share this meal together. Heavenly Father, our sin lies heavy on us. Lord, you have called us to love you with all of our heart and soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. And Lord, we have loved, it seems, everything but you. We have loved our money. We have trusted our jobs. We have been distracted from you by the cares and the concerns of this world. Lord, you have told us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we don't. We haven't. We have loved ourselves. We have honored ourselves. We have exalted ourselves over and above the people around us. We have treated ourselves as more important than they are. And Lord, we recognize this failure for what it is, and we call it what it is. That is sin. Lord, and the wages of that sin is death. We know that what we deserve for our sinful refusal to do what you have called us to do is we deserve to die. But Lord, because of the blood of your Son, because of the blood of the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world, spread on the wood of a Roman cross, Lord, we believe, we have faith, that our sins have been forgiven, that we bear them no more. And because of that, Lord, we come to you rejoicing and remembering that it's not because of our power, it's not because of our strength, it's not because of our goodness that you have saved us. But Lord, it is entirely because of your love. We thank you. We praise you. We pray that as we remember the cross and as we celebrate your people and as we look forward to the day of Christ's return, that you would keep these things always in the forefront of our minds, Lord. That we would walk through this life as people who are constantly remembering 
remembering Christ and his sacrifice, remembering his people, and remembering the coming of his kingdom. And it is, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Lord, that we pray these things today. Amen. Let's get back to the prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to be with us. We thank you that he had a body that was like ours. And we thank you for the love that you have shown us in the way that that body was broken for us. We pray all of these things in his name.